what you heard a few moments ago about the words of God in Psalm 119 and 105 through 112 will certainly fit well to the last two verses of this chapter and the fire and light, warmth, help, and vitality of God's Word versus the fire, light, and lack of help of the world's ideas and opinions. But we'll get to that in due order. Isaiah chapter 50, it's short, it's sweet, it's beautiful, it's glorious. I hope you'll muse on it, meditate on it, and love the Savior that's described in it. I hope that when I finish and give you a better understanding of it, that you might put it in your top five chapters of the book of Isaiah. If not the top five, then the top ten. Because it's worthy. Because it's so focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and His glory and the Father's strength and help of Him and vindication of Him to His enemies. He was confident during His entire ministry and He was confident on trial that He who was near Him would justify him and defend him from his enemies. And he certainly did. And he took care of all those enemies. And when we get to the end, we should be asking the question, we should apply the questions that are asked here toward Caiaphas and the other enemies that tried to do our Savior in. Isaiah 50. The Lord's given us 1,189 chapters in a Bible of two testaments and 66 books. For us to find places like this, and for us to read in the book and the law of God distinctly, and to give the sense, and to understand the reading, and to rejoice in the one that is described there, and to commit ourselves to live for Him. He is a glorious Savior, and He is the great Son of the living God. He is the great Son of David. He is the Son of Abraham. He is the seed of the woman. He is the Shiloh of Jacob. He is the star and the scepter of Jacob and Israel, and he is our coming king. And he is the touchstone of our race. Every man will be dealt with according to the love, devotion, service that he's given the Lord Jesus Christ in time and in eternity. Bless us, Lord, this day to see your son and to submit ourselves to him. Isaiah 50. Only 11 verses, four little sections. And if I mention those sections to you a couple of times in this go-around for this chapter, it's because I believe it'll help you understand it. When you can break 11 verses into four little parts and see that there is a clear delineation in this chapter, it helps understand it. Verses 1 through 3. God vindicates Himself and condemns Israel for their predicament of captivity. It was their fault. Not God's fault. Verses 4 and 5. Messiah was given divine gifts by His Father in heaven, and He faithfully used those great gifts. Verses 6 through 9. He meekly endured and submitted Himself to His enemies to lay down His life for us. He gave His back. He gave His cheeks. He gave His face. They weren't taken from Him. He gave His life. It was not taken from him. He chose to do it because he knew who was with him and that that God that was with him, though having forsaken him in the way of fellowship, would vindicate him and defend him against his enemies. Let's go ahead and get this cross-reference over with. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame of it because he knew that the throne of God was his next stopping point at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then verses 10 and 11, Messiah is the touchstone or the determinant of salvation and truth. The Lord has provided a fire of light, warmth, help, comfort, joy, strength for us if we trust in God and obey the word of His servant. And His servant is not Isaiah. His servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a tremendous blessing to look into verse 10 and want to place yourself there. But the world has another fire with sparks flying around because they will no longer endure sound doctrine so they have heaped to themselves little burning faggots that produce a great deal of sparks but no heat and light. 
And so the Lord says those that gather around that fire, which is darkness, shall lie down in sorrow. And so we have Isaiah 50. It's a wonderful chapter. I trust the Lord by His Spirit to bless it to you. Israel deserved the Babylonian captivity or any other predicament they were ever in. But Messiah, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, I use the word just to get you familiar with it. Messiah is equal to Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew word only a couple times in Daniel chapter 9, translated as Christ. It's Messiah equals Christ in the New Testament. We're told that by interpretation is Christ. Christ is the anointed one. Messiah is the anointed one. Jesus of Nazareth is his personal name. Jesus, born in Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is his personal name. He is the anointed one of God, so he is the Christ. And God has promoted him to the head of the universe, so he is Lord. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. I call him Messiah from time to time to get you used to the word. So in any reading of theologians that use Messiah instead of Christ, or Messiah instead of Son of God, you won't be misled, misled by it. It's the Old Testament word for the anointed one of God. And so this is a messianic chapter, in that this chapter of Isaiah is about him. Israel deserved the Babylonian captivity, but Messiah was gifted, was meek, and had the power to save. And we want to rejoice in all those things today. Let's look at the first point that we need to make before I get to the first section. We have come to the third part of the book of Isaiah if we want to break it in three pieces. If we want to break it in three pieces, we would take chapters 1 through 39, then 40 through 49, and then 50 to the end. As one way that it can be broken up, we have now moved from looking at Assyria and Sennacherib over and over again in the first 39 chapters to looking at Babylon and Cyrus in 11 chapter, 10 chapters from 40 to 49, and now 17 chapters to the end of the book are more and more about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you just get used to that when you're reading the book of Isaiah. We're trying to study the book of Isaiah. I want you to learn the book of Isaiah. I want you to be comfortable with it. And so that's how it develops. It's a fine development. It's sort of like the Bible. The Bible starts out with history that's thousands of years old and moves toward prophecies and God's dealing with the church. And it ends up with all about the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Here's what we have to do in and I'm going to do it briefly. Who is speaking in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9? Who is speaking? Is it Isaiah? Is it Israel? Is it all the prophets? Is it the pious of Israel? Those are ideas proffered by commentators and expositors of Scripture. Who's speaking? It is amazing that there's even a question. But it shouldn't be amazing in the real sense because we know that from the beginning there have been Christ wars. And the Christ wars are to take away worship from the Son of God by the lies of the devil who cannot stand the fact that God has raised up a man who will destroy him and cast him into hell. He was able to take the first Adam out of the way in about five minutes but the second Adam is going to take him out of the way in about one nanosecond. Amen. And he's already died on the cross and defeated him. So the, the claims of the devil have no more power over us. The accuser of the brethren is cast out of heaven. But there's been a war against seeing Jesus clearly in the scriptures. And this is one of those chapters. While you think Isaiah 53 is easy for you to understand because you assume that it's all about Jesus Christ, the Jews never gave Isaiah 53 to Jesus Christ. Right. And commentators have not, not all commentators, most Christian commentators know that Isaiah 50, 4 through 9 is about Jesus Christ. But I'm talking about higher criticism. And it's criticism of the book of Isaiah. Let me just quickly look at those verses 4 through 9. We're going to come to verse 4. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned. And, it, and it's going to go on from there. It's going to say, I gave my back, in verse 6, to the smiters. 
and my cheeks to them. Who is this? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, without a doubt. It's Messiah. It's Christos. It's the Christ. It's the Son of God. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Jews, in their constant attempt to eliminate a meek Messiah, see, they wouldn't like a passage like this. I gave my back. I gave my cheeks. I gave my face. I was humbled. I was humiliated. I was spit on. They couldn't imagine it. What they wanted was a David, a reincarnated David riding on a white horse to deliver them from the Roman Empire. But that isn't the way that God arranged this drama. And I thank God for the way He did arrange it. And that is that the Lord Jesus Christ would die a substitutionary, submissive, humble, meek death for our transgressions, that we might receive the gift of eternal life. The Jews, in their constant attempt to eliminate a meek Messiah, corrupt it, corrupt Isaiah 53, and so many other places. You know what they did in the New Testament. He's a Samaritan. He's full of the devil. He's operating with the power of Beelzebub. He's a drunkard. He's a glutton. He's this. He's that. There have been enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ from the beginning. Expositors have chosen Isaiah as the subject, someone else living in exile, or the best of the Jews. The prevailing interpretation among the Jews was the second alternative, someone else living in exile. The prophetic details cannot apply to Isaiah. We don't, there's nothing about Isaiah that we know of that fits any of these descriptions that we're going to have in verses 4 through 9, nor any other unknown man or any Jews with propriety. It doesn't fit anyone else. The prophetic details of these verses clearly fit the historical record of Jesus the Christ as it's recorded in the New Testament. When you read verses 4 through 9, you automatically think of their perfect fulfillment in the New Testament. I hope you're thankful that you live on this side of the cross and that you live on this side of 70 A.D., and that you live on this side of the completion of the New Testament canon of Scripture so that you can put on the spectacles of the New Testament and look back and read the Old Testament and understand it. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness toward us. The division and threat of the final two verses cannot apply to any like Isaiah, but rather to Christ. Jesus endured the specific torment and torture of verse 6 as a fulfillment. And Jesus in Luke chapter 18, let's go ahead and get it over with. Luke chapter 18 appealed to this prophecy that it applied to him. Luke 18. Luke 18 and verse 31. When I say get it over with, I mean turning away from Isaiah 50. I just want to work right down through its clauses and help you understand the precious verses that are there. But right now, I want to establish that it is about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we don't have to have any doubts about it. I already believe that about all of you, but I just want to remind you that there are Christ wars being fought all the time, and they have been fought from the beginning. I want to give you answers for them. And I want you to know they exist. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Then he took unto him the twelve, and said unto them, This is the Lord Jesus, Luke 18, 31. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things, and this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. He shall be spitted on. Isaiah 50 and verse 6. Spitted on. And just for an added bonus of reading Isaiah 50 and verse 6, they plucked off the hair off my cheeks. The only way that we know that Jesus had his beard plucked off is Isaiah 50 because it's not told us in the New Testament account of our Lord's torment by the Jews and the Romans. Back to Isaiah 50. Thank you, Lord, for that confirmation. Once it's applied to the Messiah, it accords well with related prophecies of Him in chapters 11 and chapters 53 and chapters 52. He is the servant of God here. And in Isaiah 52, He's the servant of God. 
And in Isaiah 53, he's the servant of God. My righteous servant shall justify many. And so we see that. And so there's consistency that it's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament in particular, including Isaiah, testify of Jesus Christ. Search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Let's come to the first lesson. Verses 1 through 3. God vindicates himself and condemns Israel for their predicament in captivity. And by God having rejected them. Jeremiah tells us plainly that God called this a divorce. He divorced and got rid of his wife, the nation of Israel. And so the question is going to arise in this first lesson, why did I do it? So let's read verses 1 through 3, the first lesson, God vindicates himself and condemns Israel for their captivity. Isaiah 50, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all, that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinketh, because there is no water, and dieth for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. Amen and amen. amen. Why are you in trouble, Israel? Why don't you get out the paperwork? Get out the divorce paperwork. Get out the divorce decree and find out why I have put you away. The Lord had indeed put them away. And the question mark does not apply to the words, whom I have put away. The question mark applies to the words, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement so that you can find out exactly why it took place? Men in Israel could divorce their wives for very simple, frivolous causes. And the Lord, to protect the nation from rampant wickedness, allowed it to happen. But Jesus corrected the excess in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9, and said it was not so from the beginning. But they could put their wives away as long as they gave them a bill of divorcement. So the poor woman burns his toast or does something to him, and the the Lord intended it to be much stricter than that, but that's how far the Pharisees had taken it. Burns his toast, and so the man would write her a bill of divorcement. This woman is no longer my wife, and he would send her out of his house, and she was no longer that man's wife. It's Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. But the issue here is, was I a frivolous husband? Did I get up in a bad mood someday and just dump you? Why are you divorced from me? Why did I divorce your mother so that all the children are away from me? You're my, you're my children by this nation of Israel. Look in the paperwork. Why? So the question is, where is the bill of your mother's divorce, divorcement whom I have put away? Why did I divorce you? Why did I get rid of this nation? Second question. Or of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? If God has creditors, that makes him a debtor. God is not a debtor to any. So he is saying, I've sold you. I've sold you to the Babylonians. Why did I do it? Because I was in debt to them, and they are my creditors, and I owed them? Oh, no. And so the questions are, why did I divorce you? Why did I sell you? And the answer is in the second half of the verse. Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves. You did it. I'm vindicated. I did not. I was not unfaithful to the covenant that I had with you. You were unfaithful to the covenant. And for your sins I've sold you. And for your sins I've divorced your mother. Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves. And for your transgressions 
is your mother put away? The two questions forced their self-examination by the nation as to the cause of their captivity. It was their fault, not God's fault. And the next verse will press that even further. They tried to excuse and exonerate themselves and blame God. And for those of you that read Ezekiel 18 last night, you know that they tried to blame God. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. This just isn't fair. We're, we're pretty good. Our dads were bad. Things shouldn't happen to us like this. And the Lord said, are not my ways fair and equal? Your ways are not fair and are unequal. Because the Lord is fair. And so that first verse is another, a, a lesson to them. Examine yourselves and understand why there's trouble in your life. Why He's chastening you. Why He's punishing you. It's not because He's not faithful. It's not because someone else got the upper hand over him and he's a debtor. It's because of your sins. And every time we sin, we should ask ourselves soberly, in the light of the four reasons why bad things happen to Christians, is God chastening me for unconfessed sin in my life? That's what he was doing to Israel. We come to the next verse where God is vindicating himself and condemning them. And this verse is about the fact that he sent so many messengers to them and appeals to keep them. He wanted to keep the relationship, but they wouldn't have them. They wouldn't have his appeals. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I visited, looking for dialogue, looking to be reconciled with you, looking to make peace and to restore you to the happy relationship that we once had, Why was there no man that would listen to me or obey me? When I called, there was none to answer. Why? What was your reasoning for not trusting me and not embracing my overtures? Was it because you didn't think I could save you? You in Babylon, you that are comfortable in Babylon, you that are not going to return to Israel because you like it there better. Do you think I can't deliver you? And so he appeals to Egypt. And notice the, the list of works that he goes through. Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea. He dried up the Red Sea by his rebuke and stacked that water up on both sides for the Israelites to go through on dry ground. I make the rivers a wilderness. He dries them up. He dried up the Euphrates. He dried up the Jordan. He dried up the seven streams of the Nile in, at different times and in different promises of his, he was going to dry up water. It's no problem for me to do it. Their fish stinketh, like Moses got to tell Pharaoh, and Pharaoh got to tell Moses on what a wreck he was making of the land of Egypt, because there is no water and dieth for thirst. And in verse 3 he goes on and adds, I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. I completely shut out the light, and for three days There was darkness in Egypt that could be felt for three whole days. That's the glory of this God. And so he's appealing to these past works of his to cause Israel to examine themselves. Why didn't you embrace me when I came after you? Did you think I couldn't deliver you? So you were just going to make your home in Babylon? You were just going to be content there, not want to get back to Jerusalem, not want to rebuild that temple, not want to restore my worship, my proper worship. And so it's the first lesson. God's vindicating himself. Verse 1, I divorced you and sold you into slavery because of your sins. 2, I tried to reconcile us and you wouldn't even hear me and I don't even understand it. Did you think I had lost the power to recover you and to bless you? And so he appeals to some of his works. And that is the first lesson of Isaiah 50. And it is more connected to what has gone before about coming out of the Babylonian captivity like we had in chapter 49 and chapter 48. And so we come to a new verse that's very different. And it is so common in the book of Isaiah to go from one verse to the next or from one chapter to the next and have the subjects totally different. 
and it's something you've got to get used to and not let it rattle you. And I warned you about this 50 chapters ago, that we were going to encounter it. And we're going to encounter verb tenses that are all over the map. I gave my back. What tense is that? That's past tense. But this is 600 B.C. I gave my back. It's just the way of the prophet. It's all kinds of verb tenses. And you determine by the context what's under consideration, and you don't let the verb tenses control you. If you do, you may end up with Isaiah. And this is all about Isaiah here. Isaiah gave his back to the smiters. Do you understand? Because it's past tense. Or you end up with it being Moses or something. Instead of trusting the context and the Lord's use of it in the New Testament to tell us it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, change in subjects, change in person of nouns, and change in verb tenses are common throughout these chapters. But let's, go to this, let's get to the second lesson of verses 4 and 5. Yes, more could be said about verses 1 through 3, and they could be plumbed further, but we don't need to do that, and I'd rather get to the other lessons. We have dealt extensively with why God had to punish Israel by the Assyrians and then punish them by the Babylonians. And we want to come to the one that's speaking in verse 4. Verses 4 and 5. Messiah used divine gifts faithfully in His work and role. Messiah, Christ, Jesus Christ, used divine gifts given to Him faithfully in His role. Verse 4. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. Why there's a paragraph mark in my Bible at verse 5, I don't have the slightest clue. Right. Because obviously you can see that verses 4 and 5 are tightly joined together. Uh, if you don't want to have a paragraph mark at all at verse 6, where we take up with a new subject, that's okay. But why they put it at 5, listen, no apostle put it at 5 and no prophet put it at 5. Right. This is an invention of men to try to help you for paragraph style Bibles. Anybody ever see a paragraph-style Bible where everything's in paragraphs instead of verses? This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, and He is distinguishing Himself from the Lord God His Father. The Lord God hath given me. So we've got two parties involved. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We had two parties involved. The same was in the beginning with God. We had two parties involved two beings that are part of the Trinity, but here we have the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord God giving Him, that is Jesus, the tongue of the learned. God gave Jesus speech that all admired. Let's look at these gifts that God gave the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 4. The Lord hath given me the tongue of the learned. A trained, eloquent man is what God prepared the Lord Jesus Christ for in the way of speech. When Jesus spoke, all men admired it. When He concluded the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished at His ability to preach and to take apart false doctrine and to present true doctrine. They were, they were overwhelmed by His authority that He spake with because the scribes and the Pharisees didn't have such authority. When officers were sent by the Pharisees and John, they came back and did not have Jesus in tow. And they asked him why they hadn't brought him. And he said, no man ever spake like this man. We, could, we couldn't handle it. To hear him preach was unbelievable. Because the Lord God gave him the tongue of the learned. Though he wasn't really schooled, but he was schooled in God's graduate degree. And when God prepares a man, whether the verb tenses are perfect or the noun persons or cases are perfect, the content makes up for it. And so when Peter would preach, they knew he hadn't gone to school and was somewhat illiterate, but they knew that he had been with Jesus because the content coming out of the man 
was impressive. And it tells us that in the first chapters of the book of Acts. But the Lord Jesus Christ had a gift of speech given to him that was powerful. At the age of 12, he could entertain the doctors of the law in Jerusalem. And we could go on and on with examples of our Lord's ability to speak. But the gift here is described as the ability to comfort mourners. And it's this Jesus that said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He was able to speak a word of comfort according to this text. Verse 4, To him that was weary, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's so much comfort that the Lord Jesus Christ gave in the Bible. And I have many examples of it here that we don't have time to look at them all. But he was so comforting. How about the single word, Mary? Was there a troubled woman outside the sepulcher of the Lord Jesus Christ, wondering where his body had been taken? Because she was committed to all that she had of him at the moment, and that was his body. And even that had been taken away, and she heard one word of comfort. Mary. Oh, Rabboni. Oh, it's so tender in the Bible. And Mary and Martha, how the Lord reminded them that Lazarus would rise again and that he'd go ahead and raise him early as well. And just all the comfort. You know, he went over and told the woman of Nain, the widow of Nain, her her only son was on that funeral buyer. And don't be, don't worry about, come on down. Come on down. And he presented the son back to his mother. The Bible's filled with the Lord Jesus Christ's ability to comfort doctrinally, comfort with faith, comfort at the time of death, and so forth. And we thank the Lord for that. And we're told about it right here in verse 4. The Lord hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. And did he ever do it? And he did it in so many different ways. Even if it's the Canaanite woman... And you think he was a little rough on her. Oh, but he saved her daughter. And he told her he hadn't seen so great faith. No, not in Israel. And do you know what that was like to say that to a Canaanite woman? Praise the Lord. That is a word of comfort. He took her down a little ways. Just to remind her of who she really was and who he really was as a Jew. But then he comforted her. And so the Bible tells us about that. And there are so many examples. You want to talk about a place where you could meditate in the Word of God? Do you want to talk about a place where the treasury of Scripture knowledge becomes your best friend? It's in a verse like this, where freight clause by clause, the treasury of Scripture knowledge is going to line up cross-references for you to think about. And if you've got an online Bible program, almost of any name, you can look at them without having to look up in a book. They're just there, 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 there. And you can rejoice that the Lord Jesus Christ has comforting words to say. If you've met a person that had authority and power to help you, and that person said, it's going to be okay. The Lord is saying that to us all the time. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I've defeated death. It's going to be okay. I'll deliver you from your enemies, like we saw in Psalm 119. It's okay. Coronavirus, it's okay. I send pestilences and I lift pestilences. It's all in my power. Isaiah had also written of Messiah. Do you remember this from a few chapters ago? I hope you do. That Messiah would not quench the smoking flax. So he knew how to speak a word to him that was weary without without quenching them and without breaking the bruised reed as we read in chapter 42. Now, the the second half of verse 4 He wakeneth morning by morning. Who wakeneth? Well, he is a pronoun. So let's go backward to the most recent antecedent, him that is weary. Is the weary man the one that wakens? No. He wakeneth morning by morning. Is it the Lord God that wakens morning by morning? Or does our God never sleep? There's an ellipsis here. Brethren, there's an ellipsis, a little word called me. He wakeneth me morning by morning. 
the Lord God gave me the tongue of the learned. The Lord God wakes me up every morning. The Lord God wakes my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God comes into my room as the son of man and taps me and says, it's time to get up, son. It's time for me to give you the lessons of the day so that you can be a learned, eloquent orator for me and declare my gospel in this world. That is what verse 4 is teaching. And Jesus is going to tell us in the Gospel of John over and over that God did convey to him his doctrine. And so if the things he knew, they were not of him, his, himself, they were because the Father had given them to him. Verse 4 is just describing the process and the, person, the intimacy of it and the personal aspect of it is precious. He wakeneth me morning by morning. He gets me up every day to learn more about what he wants me to preach. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. He wakes me up and tells me it's time for a lesson, and I pay attention to that lesson like a learned student. I am not daydreaming. I'm not shooting spitwads like we did when I was in school. I, learn, I paid attention, Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying I paid attention to the lesson that was given to me because he was faithful in the gifts God gave him. God gave him the tongue of the learned to make him eloquent, to speak a word of comfort to those that were weary. And the Lord gave him content through his ears by waking him up every morning for lessons. It's beautiful. Um, I, I, I love this verse. And I love the whole verse, including this latter part. Jehovah did teach Jesus. There's so many references. Does the Bible say that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature? How did he grow in wisdom? Who was teaching him? Yeah, a whole lot more than Joseph and Mary. Because he had to correct Mary during her life. It was the Lord that was teaching him. And there were so many things. How about the? Let, let me just throw out one verse. Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. 22 chapters of revelation of Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ revealed to his servant John. But where did Jesus get it from? The revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to get the perfect terminology for it. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him. God gave him because he's the son of man. He's subordinate to God. But he grew in wisdom because God taught him. And God revealed things to him he didn't reveal to anyone else. And in, in quantity and quality and extent and depth. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. There's four parties in Revelation 1.1. God giving that revelation to Jesus. Jesus giving it to angels to give it to John. And so John gets all these angels coming and showing him all the different things that we have in the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. I've got to go on. I hope you understand verse 4. It's personal. It's precious. It's how the Lord Jesus Christ grew in wisdom and in, con in his knowledge of Bible doctrine and true doctrine and true theology and all that is conveyed by Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe healing here, healing there, healing over there as well. But John, remember, had so much doctrine in it, and God had taught him. Verse 5, The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. The Lord God hath opened mine ear. What do you need to hear? You need an ear to hear. What else do you need to hear? A body. You need a body to hear. What else do you need to hear? Sound. If you don't have sound, you can't hear. What do you need to be able to see? Someone's going to say eye. Someone's going to say body. What do you need to be able to see? Light. Absolutely. An eye is absolutely worthless without light. So I'm trying to help you understand verse 5. When the Bible says the Lord God hath opened mine ear, it's like the Lord has opened my eyes by turning on the lights. He's opened my ears by giving me content to flow into them. And you say, really, Pastor? Yes. Because Isaiah just explained it to you in chapter 48 and verse 8. 
Isaiah 48, 8. Yea, thou heardest not, yea, thou knewest not, yea, from that time that thine ear was not opened. For I knew that thou wouldest deal very treacherously, and was called a transgressor from the womb. Your ear wasn't open because I didn't tell you even a hint of what I was going to do, because I knew if I gave you advance warning about it, you'd go ahead and subscribe it to yourself or ascribe it to your idols. Just like your eyes need light to be able to see, your ears need a sound to be able to hear something. And so that's verse 6. I mean, that's verse 5. Excuse me. The Lord God hath opened mine ear. He has provided content for mine ear to lay hold of, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. Everything he told me I believed, everything he told me to do, I committed I would do. And that is why he went to the cross. And that is why when he asked the Father, if it be possible for this cup to pass from me, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And that is how he operated his entire life. He didn't turn back from the cross. So contrary to that, the Bible says he set his face toward that cross, as we're going to have in the next few verses. If you want more evidence on how to understand verse 5, then you'll have to wait for the outline. It's rather simple. If you'll just look at Isaiah 48 and verse 8, and remember, oh yeah, by the time I get to verse 50, the Lord already expected me to have read chapter 48. Oh, yeah, I should know what those words mean because he's already given them to me in a plainer place in Isaiah 48 and verse 8. The next lesson, verses 6 through 9. Messiah meekly endured enemies by God's help. Jesus Christ meekly suffered the torment of the cross by God's help. Verses 6 through 9 I read to you. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. Amen and amen. Verse 6. I gave my back to the smiters. I suffered scourging and I submitted to it. My cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I didn't jerk my head around and try to get away from them. I gave them my beard and they plucked my beard off. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. I didn't duck around like some little sissy. I stood there and took it and submitted to their scorn and reviling of me and the shame they caused me by stripping me and spitting in my face. Spitting in the Bible is a terrible thing. And spitting in the face is a terrible thing. And the Bible, I don't need to take you to those cross references. It's a horrible thing of shame to the Lord of glory and to the Son of God to have been spat upon. And remember, I showed you in Luke 18 that Jesus Christ referred to this prophecy about him being spit upon. And the gospel accounts tell us that he was. But notice, I gave. It wasn't taken from me. I submitted. Remember verse 5? I was not rebellious to what God taught me. I didn't turn away back from what God taught me. The Lord God sent me into this world with a body, and he told me how I was to use that body, that I was to let that body be abused and tortured, crucified, and to die for the sins of my people. I didn't turn back from it. I gave my back to scourging. He didn't fight and resist. Do you know what the Bible tells us? He was like a lamb to the slaughter or he was like a sheep to the shearer. He submitted to it. And so the text here tells us that. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And so we've got shame and spitting there toward the end. He just took it all. They reviled him. They blindfolded him. They slapped him. They shamed him. If you're the son of God, then tell us who just slapped you. This is a your Lord Jesus Christ. Right. This is the King of glory in his state of humiliation when he was here on earth. 
he is no longer anything like this. He, he's now taken all authority in the rod of iron rule and has destroyed these enemies that destroyed him. Verse 7, for the Lord God will help me. This is so comforting. Here, here again, let me say it. Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 9, that when he knew it was time for him to die, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He didn't want to go anywhere else. He didn't want to go on vacation. He didn't want to break. He didn't want to take time off. He set his face to go to Jerusalem because he was ready and willing to die just like this prophecy tells us about him, because he knew God was with him. And so let me say it for the third time, for the joy that was set before him. He knew God was with him. He knew there was going to be a reward for him going to the cross, and that would be to inherit the rule of the universe and to sit down at God's right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. And when you read Psalm 16, you make sure that you understand when it says there are pleasures at God's right hand, that is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Peter and Paul quoted it for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ that sat down with pleasure at God's right hand and for the joy that was set before him. That's time number four. He was able to endure that cross, just like it says here. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. How did God help him? How about the sun darkening? How about sackcloth being thrown over the sun while Jesus hung on the cross? Did that take care of his nakedness for a while to most observers? How about an earthquake? How about a resurrection? How about a converted centurion to a certain degree? Remember, there are converted reprobates. Truly, this man was the son of God. We don't know anything about that man's soul, nor do we care. That's between him and God in the book of life and the Lord Jesus Christ. But God did so many things for him, and God raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. God caused the blindness on those keepers and the shaking of the keepers of the sepulcher of the Lord Jesus Christ. God blessed the Lord Jesus Christ. He ascended up into heaven and took complete control of the universe. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Because there was one with him who was near him, who helped him, who left him for a while in the way of fellowship, but was there to vindicate him and raise him from the dead. I'll not be ashamed. Verse 8, he is near that justifieth me. Does that make you think of 1 Timothy 3.16? Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit. To be justified is to be, declared, to be declared and proven as something. And for the Son of God to be declared and proven as the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection, by the spirit of holiness. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, the resurrection proved him to be God's Son. The resurrection proved him to be a prophet, the likes of which there had never been. Kill me, put me in the ground, and in three days and three nights, I'll rise again. He was vindicated and justified by God. Let us stand together. Who will contend with me? Caiaphas contended with him. The Jews contended with him. Annas, Pilate, Herod. Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Come here. I love these verses. This is the Lord Jesus Christ coming out of what he did on the cross. Come here. You want to try me now? Oh, yes. You want to try me now? Now, Jesus didn't wait all the way till it was over to say that to Caiaphas. Do you know? Do you remember Matthew chapter 26? When Caiaphas swore him to tell the truth? And he said, I have a little bit of extra material for you. You and your buddies standing around here are going to see me coming in the clouds of heaven in vengeance on this generation. That is my Savior. Amen. <laughs> and this is, this is just telling us a little bit about it from a prophetic angle. I hope you like this. I don't like them picking on my Savior. I probably would have been, I hope, let's just, let's, let me say I hope, I would have been like Peter 
and want to pull a sword and do something, even though it was the wrong thing to do, just out of desire to defend my Lord. That was Peter's desire. Let me go over these. Let me start at verse 7 again. The Lord God will help me. That's the Lord God that gave him the tongue of the learned. That's the Lord God that woke him up every morning and taught him pure doctrine. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. There was an earthquake that tore rocks. There was a resurrection with residual power that raised dead saints and they walked into Jerusalem and greeted people. Therefore have I set my face like a flint based on God helping me, based on the joy that is set before me, based on me never being confounded, based on this is not going to last but a few hours and I will be vindicated. Based on all of that, I set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Verse 7. He is near that justifieth me. God is not a long way off. Who will contend with me? This is as Jesus progresses through. See, Jesus understood all this. And don't you be confused. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Remember, three hours or a few hours later, a couple hours later, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So that was just a short period of time while he was hanging on the cross, and he knew at the end he had done everything the Father wanted him to do. As soon as he got that last dose of vinegar, when he said, I thirst, because he had to fulfill the last scripture, and that's when he said it is finished, because I've now fulfilled everything. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He knew God was near, but the fellowship was gone. And the joy that they had had together was gone because the father stood back and was pleased to bruise him for a little while. But at the end of that crucifixion, Jesus knew by faith he could commit his soul. As that spirit left his body, he could commit his spirit into God's hands and it would not be dropped. No, not a millimeter. Because underneath were the everlasting arms. And if there was ever a chariot waiting for a spirit, it was for the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knew that. He knew that. And he knew that at the end of that chariot ride, there was a whole lot of joy and excitement. And when you read Revelation chapter 5, is that pretty exciting to read? When the three choirs break forth? Yeah, I think so. It's, it's worth it. It was worth it to him. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Where are all you now? Come here. Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Listen to these words. This is my Savior. The whole world is going to have to deal with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to meet him face to face. And they're going to have to deal with the one that they have mocked and scorned and sworn in his name. Listen to him talk. The Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. And was the nation of Israel destroyed and desolated? It certainly was. Over the next 40 years and in 70 AD, it was taken from the earth. And that city was leveled to the ground. The priesthood gone. The temple altar, everything gone. With a tribulation the world hadn't seen, hasn't seen, and nor will see until the great day of judgment. And that's my Lord Jesus Christ. Now the last lesson. And I can't believe that there's so many things I'd like to say in I hope that you'll meditate on these 11 verses. It's short, it's sweet, but it's so full of wonderful things. His enemies were despised, destroyed, and desolated by great wrath. The wrath has come upon them to the uttermost, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, probably around 60 AD in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 and 14. The wrath of God has come on them to the uttermost. All the righteous blood shed on earth from righteous Abel to Zacharias, the last recorded one in the historical books of the Old Testament, all the righteous blood was coming on that generation because they touched our Savior. He's our Lord, and He submitted to it. I gave my back to them. Do you know what He's giving them now? It's in His right hand. It's a rod of iron. Do you know what He's giving them now? It's coming out of His mouth. It's a two-edged sword. Do you know what his name is on his white horse? The Word of God. Do you know what the blood is dripping from his white horse? It is not his atoning blood. Right. 
it is the blood of his enemies, because he has trampled the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. That is the Jesus I present to you. Do you believe on that Jesus Christ? Do you believe he came into this world? Do you believe these facts about him are true? Do you love him for what he did? Do you embrace him? Do you fall at his feet? And are you willing to obey him and do anything for him? Do you say to him, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And then do it. Here we come to the verses 10 and 11. The touchstone of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a division among the people, John tells us. And there was a division among the people, John tells us again. And there was a division among the people because of him, John tells us for the third time. Look at verse 10. Who is among you that feareth the Lord? There's God Jehovah that obeyeth the voice of his servant. There's the Lord Jesus Christ that walketh in darkness and hath no light. Are you troubled? Are you weary? Are you weak? Are you fearful? Are you discouraged today? Do you trust in the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? Will you obey the voice of his servant? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. God will take care of you. God's going to lift you up. He's going to revive you. He's going to teach you. He's going to comfort you. He's going to give you joy. He's going to take your burdens. He's going to lead you all the way into heaven. And so we gather around a fire, as it were. The fire isn't mentioned here. The fire is in the next verse. These two verses are opposite each other. Look at verse 10. Who is among you that feareth the Lord? And I'm asking this congregation, do you fear the Lord God today? To fear God is not something that is just intellectual. It is a life of obedience to Him. You'll give Him every part of your life. Is He the Lord of your life? By your obedience to Him. Who is among you that feareth the Lord? That obeyeth the voice of His servant? Jesus Christ. Remember the Lord God gave content and doctrine and knowledge to the Lord Jesus Christ to teach. Are we going to obey the New Testament gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Do you feel that way sometimes? I'm confused. I'm troubled. I don't know. I'm lacking assurance. I'm lacking joy. I'm fearful. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. The name of the Lord. You know, see, it becomes interesting now. The name of the Lord. The Lord Jehovah, capitalists, Jehovah. I am that I am. But you know, he now has a son named Jesus. And do you know what Jesus is? Jehovah is salvation. I mean, now that's a name to trust in. Because God hath given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of... Oh. Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Yes, Lord! Stay upon that name. Stay upon that name. At the moment of death, stay upon that name. I tell you, stay upon that name. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus didn't have a mediator. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. We do. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I want my spirit to arrive in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ as my chauffeur and chaperone, attorney and lawyer, and I'll be safe forever. Amen. That is how I stay upon my God and upon His Son. Verse 10. We have the body of doctrine. We have the right doctrine. We have the right truth. We have the right religion. We have the right worship. Because we fear the Lord, we obey the voice of His servant. And no matter when we're discouraged, no matter when we're discouraged, God's given Him the tongue of the learned that He's able to speak a word to those that are weary. I hope you see the whole chapter just coming together. This mighty king, this mighty king on his white horse says to his enemies, come here. Come here and stand before me now, my adversaries. To them. To me, he says, come here. You and I will handle your life. 
pretty different words, aren't they? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, verses. Come here and stand before me, my adversaries. He's comforted me so many times in my 62 years. He's warned me so gently. He's helped me when I'm weary. And he's got me to this day. And what he'll have to do to get me to tomorrow, I don't worry about. As long as he's with me right now, today, with you and with Isaiah 50, I don't need, I don't need anything else. 10 is just wonderful. I want you to see 10 and 11 with a chasm between them. That is the infinity, or near, near infinity between heaven and hell. It includes all of it. But here's verse 11. This is the world. If you want to understand verse 11 as well as possible, first of all, think of the Jews that rejected their Messiah. Then think of Christians today who will no longer endure sound doctrine, but heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and have turned away their ears from the truth and the fables. Then think about the whole world. Think about the whole world. They want to listen to Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking is their fire. Joel Osteen is the fire of the second group. Caiaphas was the fire of the first group. Are you with me? And all it is is a bunch of sparks. And here's what, this, here's what my, touchstones, my touchstone says. Here's what the determinant of all men says. Here's what the Lord Jesus Christ says. Behold, all ye that kindle a fire, you want some light, so you make your own light. You kindle it. You bring it out of your imagination. You bring evolution out of your imagination. You bring out of your imagination global warming. You bring it out of your imagination. Behold, all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks. You just want all these little sparks around you, and you think that it's fire and light. Walk. Go ahead. Go ahead. Walk in the light of your fire and the sparks that ye have kindled. This shall ye have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Levites, the lawyers, they all got together and conspired together against the Lord Jesus Christ. We're the children of Abraham. Nothing can happen to us. We've got the temple. Nothing can happen to us. We've got the city of Jerusalem. It's the city of the great God. Nothing can happen to us. They kindled themselves a fire. Men today are kindling themselves a fire. God loves everyone. God doesn't want anything bad to happen to anyone. Where'd coronavirus come from? Well, we know it didn't come from God. You know, on and on they go, kindling their own little fire with sparks flying up around them. All of them in the whole world, whether it's Stephen Hawking or anyone else, what does Jesus Christ have to say to them? They shall lie down in sorrow. He did that to the generation that we know the best in the Bible. In 70 AD, they lie down in sorrow. And he is going to expose all false teachers, and he's going to burn up this world in a day that's coming soon. You have two choices. You are in verse 10, or you are in verse 11. And if you're in verse 10, the fear of the Lord is more than some intellectual assent to his existence. It's obedience and service and delight and love for him, and that you want to obey the voice of his servant. Do you want to obey Jesus in everything he said? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, right. and the wrath of God abides on him. Let this, these two verses right here, and this glorious Savior that God sent into this world and prepared with divine gifts, who faithfully used those gifts, who submitted meekly to the torture that was put upon him by the Jews and the Romans at the Jewish instigation, who is no longer afraid, and even then was fully committed and courageous, and knew he would not be confounded or ashamed, but ascended up into heaven for the joy that was set before him. He's our Lord and our Savior, and he's coming again for us. And he knows how to speak a word of comfort to those that are weary. And he can speak that word to you. If you haven't heard his voice in a while, it's your fault, not his fault. It's because you've grieved and quenched his spirit. It is, he is, the Spirit of God is called the Spirit of Christ. Galatians chapter 4, Romans chapter 8. He's the Spirit of Christ. And he will speak to you. He'll tell you that it's okay. That I'll, 
that I'll be with you. We will make it through this. I'm not talking about coronavirus. It's never entered my mind. You know, a, a good blessing would be for it to come and get me. Then I could get a chariot ride and be with him. You know, we're not going to look for it, and I'll wash my hands once a week or something like that. But I'm not afraid of that. Let's be afraid of disappointing him and being left alone. And he's a wonderful Savior. And when I look at verse 11, all I can see is the world around us trying to light a fire with a few sparks. And the Lord's making fun of their sparks, and he says, go ahead and walk in the light of your fire. Go ahead and walk in the light of evolution. See where it brings you. Do you know where evolution has brought us? We're living in it right now. All the junk that is going on is because of evolution. There's no God. We're not accountable to anyone. We can just do whatever we want. We can invent things like transgendering. I want to identify as a woman. I want to identify as a dog. I see that dogs are better treated in America than people, so I'm going to identify as a dog. Okay, I'm going to get down and start crawling around. And pretty soon there'll be a doctor that offers me surgery. They have their sparks. We have the light of the world. Psalm 119, 105 through 112. Look at those two verses. The choice that we make. To walk in His light of verse 10 or to walk in their light of verse 11. Let's swear. Let's swear intentionally. Lord Jesus, it is Your Word. I know now where you went to school and who taught you and that he woke you up every morning like my mom used to wake me up. And I don't mean that lightly, Lord, but I know that you were taught by the God of heaven and thank you for knowing so much and being able to comfort me. I'm all yours. I love your words. I'm going to defend and I'll die by every one of them. And I will reject this world and deny its claims against me and all of its temptations and seductions I'll deny as well. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.